Amen. It's good to see you this morning. We are about halfway through Lent. I hope you're Lenting well. Lent is this uh, time leading up to Easter, kind of new life, and yet it's a time where we look for uh, opportunities to make room for God in our life. We we might do some things that we don't normally do. I know some of you have been coming to the Wednesday night Lent groups and hearing wonderful responses and things that are happening in that. Maybe some disciplines that you're choosing to put in your life that you don't normally do. You also may be doing without some things. You may be fasting some things, pushing some things away. One of the very small things that I'm doing is I'm, I'm doing without uh, syrup in my coffee. Uh, now, that may seem like not a very big thing to you, but I don't like coffee. And so you have to understand that drinking regular coffee is, yeah, to me. Um, I didn't drink coffee until I was 50 years old. Uh, and my kids, you have to understand, were raised in the coffee generation. And so they are coffee shop people. They love coffee shops. And matter of fact, we tra- travel across the country and the world. That's all they do is Google coffee shops. What are the, you know, the unique kind of homegrown kind of things in each city. And so I spent years just kind of twiddling my thumb in coffee shops. And Janice loves coffee. And so all four of my kids love coffee. And and she was a bad influence on them. But um, um, and in so many ways. Yeah. And, uh, and so I said, okay, about six years ago, I said, I, I've got to, I want to participate in this. You know, I want to feel like I'm involved. And so I started doctoring it up a little bit. And I got this right, perfect little formula. And uh, we're, and I've kind of gotten hooked on it now, as you know, after, you know how that goes. And uh, so during Lent, I'm just drinking straight coffee. And, uh, um, and so it, it's done a couple of interesting things to me. First of all, because, again, I have to get it now because I'm hooked. Um, so I take that first sip, and, and it's like, yeah, you know, the bitterness. And, and, uh, but a couple things have begun to happen. One is I've just, it's made me think about things I'm thankful for. It's made me be thankful for syrups. Um, thankful for those little special things that God does in our life that we sometimes just take for granted. Uh, it also, because it irritates me, um, it also causes me to think about, uh, it, it kind of wakes me up, not just from the caffeine, but it also wakes me up and, 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 and the whole, why am I doing this? The whole idea is, okay, God, I, I want you to speak into my day, whether it's the rest of the, the drive to work or whatever. I want, I want you to, to, to lead me and I want to pay attention and I want to listen. And we don't do this just to irritate ourselves out of some kind of punishment or, you know, I'm punishing myself for my sins. That's not the point of this. It's, it's just to kind of wake us up. It's to cause us to, to think about God in different places than we have in the past. And so we've so, uh, got a few weeks left of this. I hope that you're doing something that's, that's where you're irritating yourself a little bit and, uh, and that we're waking up and paying attention. Today, we're going to continue in our series looking at specifically the life of Jesus, the, the words of Jesus. Uh, we've been looking at, at uh, um, different parables. We're going to look at a parable today that's very familiar to you. If you have your Bibles, uh, look on the screen, look in your iPhone, however you connect here. We're going to look at Luke 15, uh, Luke 15, 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to the, his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's a very familiar story, isn't it? Um, many of you probably know it inside and out. You've heard it several times. As a matter of fact, over the years, many literary groups have said that this is uh, considered the best short story ever written. Um, and I think that's nice that some humans have gotten together and voted God the best author. Don't you think that's good? <laughs> I think like gave him the Academy Award here. Um, but to really understand the implications of this, we really have to go back to the first verse in this chapter. Uh, Luke 15, 1 says, Now the, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, hear, hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Uh, this parable uh, of the prodigals, the third, um, the third parable in line of, of uh, following this particular introduction. Another one was the lost parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Um, and the problem that these religious leaders were having was that Jesus was in this habit of having these celebrations with the wrong people. He was hanging out with the wrong folks, and he was having these little celebrations as somebody would, would listen to the message that he had and begin to lean into that message, he would have a celebration. Um, but it was with the wrong people. 
Now, to understand that clearly, you would have to go back in time to um, being a Jew in that, in that particular time in the culture. Uh, most Jews still felt like that they were in some form of exile. Uh, they still had this uh, repressive regime that was um, over them and controlling them. And so they were looking for this Messiah. And there were only two ways that they thought that they could possibly ever break free from this oppression. The first one was, as we've talked about before, is that they thought that Messiah was going um, to pick up arms and to overcome um, physically. Uh, through military might and overcome the the Romans at the time. But by this time in the story, they could tell that Jesus wasn't real keen on that. He wasn't going that direction. So if you're not going to do that, then you need to do what the only other option is for us to find freedom from this is that we need to separate ourselves from all the sinners we need to separate ourselves and, and cloister ourselves into our own place to where we live a life that is holy. And the more holy we can become, maybe we'll become holy enough that God will come in um, and invade our circumstances and take us to freedom. And so the idea is, is if, if you're not going to deliver us through military might, at least you could separate yourself from the bad people, from the sinners, and live a life that, that is holy and separated so that we might ultimately find freedom. I think they were afraid that some of the sin would rub off on them. It's like sin cooties. Mm-hmm. If I hang around with you, I'm going to get your cooties, so I have to stay away from you. And, and I do think there is the possibility that sometimes when we hang around with people who are not living the best lifestyle, if we're not careful, we can compromise and we can slide in to some bad habits. I, if you take a look at the children of Israel, you know, oftentimes when they would be around another um, culture or around another country, sometimes they would start worshiping those false idols. They would wander away from the true God and they would worship those false idols. And so, yes, there is a concern there. And yet, when you look at the children of Israel, when you look at the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, when God speaks to Abraham and says, I will bless you, if you continue to read on, he says, I will bless you so that you can bless all people of the earth. They forgot that their call was to be a blessing to the entire world. And that includes bringing people in, accepting and loving people without compromise, but loving people and bringing them in to the family. Take a look at Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So the Pharisees thought they were doing the right thing by pulling themselves away and becoming separate, but they were missing God's call to reach out to the outsiders and to bring them in. 
So they were following the old ways. Uh, if you follow a little farther in Matthew there, you'll see them talking about these fasting regimens that they had, that there's certain times of the week, certain times of the month that were to fast. The whole point of their fasting at that time was to remember all of the horrible things that they had gone through as the people of God. Um, all the difficulties and challenges they went through on why they need a Messiah in the first place. And Jesus is coming and saying, a new day is dawning. We're stepping into a new place where it's not about sacrifice any longer. It's not about holy, how holy your behavior is and how separated you can be. It's about taking this mercy, um, this love for the world and going to those that, that need the Messiah, that, that, that need a savior. And I wonder how much that has kind of rubbed off on the modern day church. How oftentimes this idea of our Christian, our Christian journey is about being a unique people and, and a peculiar people, which is all appropriate. But how much we've, we've thought then that that just means that I just need to separate myself from all the bad people. Uh, what I need to do in my life is just pull away, live a life, follow all the rules and regulations, and just stay away um, from the bad people. And we spend so much time and energy trying to get people to think right, make sure that they're going to vote for um, the, the right party, make sure that their morals and their ethics are perfectly aligned, make sure that they believe that, that the way a church is run um, is the way that I believe a church is run, um, and that we separate ourselves from that. Now, one of the things that I, or we, we separate ourselves from each other, and we miss the whole point of the kingdom, the whole point that we are to be out there with those that need a savior. And one of the things that I really appreciate about this particular community is, as, I, as we see um, you live your lives together, is that you have this really wonderful capacity to embrace difference and diversity and people that come from different backgrounds and life experiences. I love to hear the different kinds of Christian traditions that people come from that are here together. If we passed a microphone around, you would hear some pretty amazing stories of different perspectives. Now, all of you believe the words that we say each Sunday, the, the core message of the gospel, of the gospel but how, how you think the church should be and how we should live our life and so forth is really quite different. And you have, you're showing that capacity to be able to embrace that and to be able to love each other and accept each other. You have an amazing capacity to be generous. Every time we present something to you on those that are, are out there that need, desperately need um, what you're carrying in your heart, you're very generous in how you operate with that. It's one of the reasons we love hanging out with you. Um, being one of your pastors, because we see that, that the, what we consider the true message of, uh, of Christianity, what Christianity is all about. Um, but I think each of us still have to be careful to make sure that, that we are not pulling away from those that really need this message. I was saved in the Jesus movement in the early 70s, and, and we were a pretty motley crew of people that all just came and fell in love with Jesus. And I remember hearing one of the older people saying, you know, some people feel like they need to clean the fish before they catch them. We need to get everybody cleaned up to get them to come to the Lord. And at the time, I thought, I don't, what the heck does that mean? And I realized they were accepting some pretty rough ones of us into the kingdom and allowing the Holy Spirit to work through and to do cleansing and changing that needed to be happening. They accepted us for just who we are because we were a follower of Jesus and we were in love with him.
Now back to the text. You know, one of the obvious elements of this story is this father, the incredible reaction of the father. But not just at the end. I think about at the very beginning. His son comes to him and he says, give me my inheritance now. That's like saying, you know, I really wish you were dead because I want the money. That had to be painful. And probably what happened to give him this money, probably what happened is he had to sell off part of the family land or properties in order to divide this and give him this cash. So there would have been some shame that came to the, to the family. But instead of all of this harsh response to his son, he just said, okay, if this is what you want, okay. Not okay, well, let's see what you're going to do with it. But he lovingly let him go and let him go on his way. I think this is where we begin to see a glimpse of the nature of God's love. Okay, I love you and I will allow you to go your way. So another key element that we see here is kind of the foundation. This really informs us of the idea of what maybe you've heard um, called tough love. Um, all of you are going to face, we all have this in our lives, where there's going to be people that you love and that you care about that are going the wrong direction. Uh, it might be a, a wayward child, a teenager or an adult child that has, has taken the wrong course. And it just, it's killing you. It's hurting your heart and what's happening. Maybe a wayward spouse that's decided that they want to, to leave the family and, and uh, it's crushing um, what, what your ideals and beliefs are. Maybe a business partner that is going the wrong way. And all of us, certainly out of care and love, want to help fix that. We want to we rescue them and, and pull them back. Um, but oftentimes what tends to happen is you have to allow people to experience the natural consequences uh, before they'll ever get it, before they'll ever turn away that, uh, and turn back. That a lot of times your own efforts uh, will never, and sometimes actually it creates even more uh, rebellion in them. The more you try to rescue them, the faster they try to run. It's a little bit what we deal with as counselors um, consistently. We've got somebody sitting in front of us that that is... Uh, you know, been abusing alcohol, and they have just they've done this several times over and over again, and it's it's creating havoc in their life. It's causing problems in their marriage, and they're sitting there um, trying to convince me that they think they can manage this. Um, they they know there's been problems, but and I've heard some phenomenal concoctions and plans of how they think they're going to manage this. Well, I think if I just, you know, I, I just, I know it has to do with how much you drink and, and, and how much time. And so I think if I limit it to four to six beers and then only three hard drinks within a certain period of time, I think if I can cut it back and hold it, you know, I'm sitting there inside going, you have lost your mind. Um, but trying to debate with them and explain that absolutely does nothing at the time. Or I've got somebody that's trying to convince me their, their partner walked in while they were viewing pornography and they're trying to convince me that it's not, it's not hurting anything. Uh, I'm not doing anything with anybody. It's just eye candy. I don't love these people. It's just, you know, it's just a little thing. You know, I'm a guy, and it's just something that, that we do. It's not really hurting anything. Or I've got a young woman who reports that she has connected with a, a married guy at work, and and uh, they've, they've kind of got some chemistry going, and she just is absolutely convinced that she has found the love of her life. And inside, I'm sitting there wanting to say, 
you are an idiot. Um, but Janice says, that's mean. That's not a nice thing to say. And so, so, so then I think, uh, then I want to say, you are doing idiotic behavior, um, which is a little nicer. Um, but the reality is there's not much that I can say. Generally, we have to just bless them and go on. You know, we have to just, okay, if you think you can do that, then, you know, knock yourself out. Um, and oftentimes, six months later, a year later, they may show up again. And they have come finally to the end of themselves. The scripture says in verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, God gives everybody an opportunity to come to the end of their senses, uh, to come to the end of themselves where they realize, okay, I, I give up. Uncle, I can't do this. I, I thought I could handle my own life. I thought I could make my, you know, find a way to get my own needs met. God gives every single person an opportunity to get there. Now, we all would love to catch people as they're falling out of the tree. You know, we'd like to catch them on the way down, but oftentimes we have to just let them go splat. Um, and we have to then trust, which I think is one of the greatest places of faith that we can be in, when particularly this is a loved one in our life. We have to be able to release them and trust that God loves them better than we do uh, and that God will always give them an opportunity. Um, to turn around. You notice that the father doesn't run after him. He doesn't send little messengers to check on him um, throughout his experience. He doesn't, he doesn't send somebody after him to, you know, maybe he's got a little bit of money to help him in difficult times. Um, he doesn't do any of that. He lets him go. Um, God does not force himself. He does not force his, his love on us. Now, he's always ready for us to respond. Now, I think that each of us have a little bit of prodigal in us. I would say each of us, now we could all say, well, I don't, I've not done anything that bad. I've not totally rejected God and moved away. But I think there's places in all of us where we reject God every day. I think we say, no, don't mess with, don't, don't mess with that part of my life. Um, you know, keep it, you, I'll give you this part of me, but don't mess with these parts of me. And I think that's a prodigal nature in us where we are um, wanting to do our own thing. We're wanting to reject him. We're wanting to go um, spend our life recklessly however, however we want to. And he will not force himself on us. But each one of us, the only way that we're ever going to get reconnected, ever, the only way is we have to come to a place of choice. We have to come to that place of self-awareness where I recognize that this is a place that I have said no to God. And, and yet, I want to turn and go back that direction. It doesn't mean that you even know how to get there. He'll, he'll help you figure that out. I don't think the son had a clue what was actually going to happen. He just said, I've got to go back. That's where life is. I've got to go back that direction. But each of us have to own it. We have to make the decision um, to, say, to say no to our own path and yes to his path. Now, my favorite part of the story, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Our daughter, Caitlin, lives in Detroit, and one of the things I've noticed is every time she either comes here or I fly up there to see her, I'm totally fine. We're driving to the airport. I'm totally fine. I'm talking to everybody or I'm flying in on the plane and I'm totally fine. I go to the baggage area and as soon as I see her, all of a sudden these tears start coming up 
And then they start spilling down my face. And once I see her, I get to her. I'm not emotional. I get to her, and by the time I get to her, I'm just sobbing. It's just like, Ugh. and I'm like, oh, I'm so dumb. I just saw her two months ago. What's wrong with me? <laughs> but there's just that love that wells up within. And I think that that's what we're seeing in the Father while he was still a long ways off. So I imagine the father each morning looking out, looking at the horizon or going through his day, working on things, supervising some of his workers on the land and looking up and going, is that him? Oh, no, that's a messenger. Is that him? No. And going day after day until he goes, that's him. That's my son. He's coming back. And he didn't wait for the son to apologize. He didn't stand there and go, well, I hope you got a good explanation for yourself. Do you have any money you're bringing back with you after all I gave you? He just was so grateful to see his son back. He loved him so much, he ran out to him. That's when I think we see the heart of God for us. He loves us so much. If we ever wonder, this is a great scripture that lets us know. We are in his heart. You don't have to earn a place in God. You're already there. He loves you totally, completely, and absolutely. And as Brent said, as you turn towards him, he comes towards you. Romans 5, 6 says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, some may possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This goes against the false narrative that we hear in our culture that you have to earn your place. You have to be good enough. And then you get the prize. He loves you just the way that you are, and he welcomes you in. And to many, this, this idea of this kind of love seems very reckless. It seems almost too much. Uh, the number one reason that, that I have found that people have a hard time really accepting this and believing this is because it's, well, are the people really changing, though? If, if you love them this extravagantly up front, what if they take advantage of that? What if they don't really then change? Because isn't the point that they really then need to change and be transformed? And, and they might get lazy if they think that they're already completely and fully loved, then they're, they're not even going to try anymore. Shouldn't I kind of withhold? I mean, kind of say, gosh, you're doing good. Keep going. I think you can get there. Not quite there yet, but I think, I think you can get there, and, and, then, and then we'll celebrate. Shouldn't, wouldn't that be better? And then once they really kind of get their act together completely, then we can really throw a party. I think that's what we have a hard time with and get confused with. But as you notice, Jesus didn't really fill in the blanks. He didn't think we really needed that here. We don't really know what happened. We don't know if the son really got his act together. We don't know whether he really changed or not. Now, we certainly see the, uh, a certain confession, a recognition of, of I, I failed, I messed up here. We see kind of signs of repentance, which is I, I want to do different. But that's all we see here. We don't know if he really changes or not. So maybe the point is 
not whether people get all the way there or not. Maybe the point is that we're supposed to start celebrating um, a little earlier than we tend to. Um, the Lord's Prayer uh, that we prayed just a few moments ago, uh, one of the key parts of that is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, this informs us that we should try to figure out what's going on in heaven and then do it here. That's what it's saying to us. Um, if you go back just a few verses in Luke here, it says, in, this, in verse 10, it says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, so what might happen if we started celebrating people earlier? Um, we, we tend to wait. We tend to try to give them this plan on now how you can fix your life up. Um, that you need to say the right words. You need to uh, understand God the way I understand him. What if we started celebrating earlier? If you were listening to this at the time and, and you were living in Israel, there would have been a backstory that you were kind of hearing in the midst of this story. Because they felt like they were a people in exile under this pagan government, they were all longing for this Messiah to come. They were longing for freedom. And so they would have been listening to this story and they would have been thinking about when they were in bondage in Egypt and when Moses led them out of bondage. And then they would have been thinking about their years as a people of disobedience and how they were taken into captivity by, by uh, Babylon, and that some of them had returned from captivity, but they still felt this oppression. They still felt this heaviness, and they were waiting for freedom for Israel. They had hope that Israel would be restored and would be renewed, and that they would be a free people. So they were thinking about like the prophecy um, from Ezekiel, when he prophesied to the dry bones, and they came back to life again. They were waiting for that to happen. If we take a look in Ezekiel, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their number. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. They were longing for this to happen, and Jesus was saying to them, that is me. I'm the hope of Israel. I'm here now. I am here, and I am proclaiming freedom for the captives. As you believe in me, then you become free. Then you go forth in the promises that God has for you. The final element we're going to take a quick look at is just um, the position of the older brother. Uh, verse 28 again says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I, would so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. 
Once again, the attitude of the, old, of the father stands out so obviously here. Um, here we've got this older brother who's actually lecturing the father in front of all of his guests at this party, refuses to come in, um, and is really showing the same level of disrespect that the younger brother did. Um, he would say, I've, I've done everything just right. I've followed all the rules, and yet you're celebrating him more than you are me. And I wonder if, if um, we don't find ourselves in that place sometimes where, where we feel like I've kind of lived properly and done the things right, and now somebody that's been brought in is being celebrated um, and honored. I think uh, you know, the older brother couldn't see past the sins of, of the younger brother, um, just as the religious leaders couldn't see past the, the people that Jesus was hanging out with. That's all they could think about. They, could, they didn't understand what was really going forward. Uh, we're going to see this in, in Paul as he goes into establishing the churches in the regions. He goes through his missionary journeys, and he's going to face this, this, this challenge by some of the Jews and the Jewish Christians that now this message is for the Gentiles. Well, people are going, those are the dogs. Those are the bad people. And you're saying that they can be brought into this? We're the people of God. We've, 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 we're the blessed ones. We've done all the right things, and now they get to be brought in. And so, once again, the, the parable here is, uh, is not totally finished. We, we would love to know exactly what happens. We'd like to know, you know, do the, do the brothers reconcile? Does the older brother actually, does he, is he convicted in his heart of his attitude? Uh, is the younger brother really get his act together? Does he... Um, is he really allow, does he really allow for transformation? And I think these, these stories go unfinished to allow us to step into the story a little bit, allow us to see ourselves in the story. And I don't know about you, but as I've gone through this and read this over and over and over again the last few weeks, uh, I've seen myself probably in all of these a little bit. I've seen myself sometimes in different ones at the same time. Some of you are relating to the, to the father. You're relating to, you've got a loved one that's going sideways, that you, that's just killing you. You wake up every morning, go to bed at night, just aching for the, the bad, over the bad decisions that, that this person um, is making. You want so badly to go out and fix it and, and rescue them. You've tried to reason with them over and over again, um, but it's not working. And can we trust God enough to release them into his hands? Um, certainly, as we just mentioned, the older brother, you know, there's times where we, we see certain people being either honored or celebrated or their life is going really well. It seems like they're blessed in ways. Um, does, does it irritate you sometimes to see people that have really messed up a lot even get financial blessings? Nobody's irritated by that. Okay, it's just me. Um, you know, it's like, what? I've I've really tried to follow and do right, and and now I've got sickness in my family, or or going through financial difficulties, and these guys, you know, they it's not fair, God. Is there some of that that stirs in us? And some of you may be relating to the to the younger son. You may have found yourself slipping across the line back and forth, in and out, and pretty well convinced that 
yeah, I hear God loves me, and I, gosh, it sounds great. And maybe he'll forgive me. Maybe I'll squeak into heaven. But because of my failures, there's no way that I could really live an A-class life and soar and and, and really be used by God. You know, I'm going to have to kind of stay in the background going to live kind of a C-class life because of this sense of shame that I, that there's no way that I could do enough to make it up. And, and I'm not even sure what he thinks about me, as a matter of fact. And I'm just going to kind of keep every, you know, kind of live, live in a, in a place where I just shouldn't have too high of expectations. You know, I've had these glimmers of how God might use me, but, you know, I'm sure he's given up on that plan. I'm sure he'll never want to use me in that way. And so wherever we find ourselves in the story, um, what's what's he saying to that part and that piece of us? Are we able to acknowledge it first? Really, we're all prodigals. You know, we're all in need of a savior. We can't do this thing on our own. We all need to be forgiven and to be washed clean. When I think about um, the prodigal son, sometimes I, I think about what if he woke up like the next morning or a couple days later, and it was like, yeah, the celebration's over. Now, what do I really have to do to earn my way back? How, how can I really repay you, Father, for everything that I've squandered? Do I need to work here, or what do I need to do? Whenever I think of that, I, I think about a time in my life when I was a freshman at ORU, and my parents had told me that they wanted to pay for my college after my scholarships. And my dad had never graduated from high school. He had to drop out and support his family by driving a taxi his senior year of high school. So it was very important to him that I went to college. And at that time, ORU cost the same as our in-state tuition. Um, things were different then. It was a lot cheaper. But um, still, I came to ORU, and you know, I started meeting the girls on the wing. And, and some of them started saying, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish the semester because. I don't have enough money for tuition. Or some of them would go, well, I can only be here a year because we just can't afford for me to stay any longer than that. Or I had some that were working all hours of the day and night to try to earn tuition money to stay. And I started looking around, and, you know, so many of the girls had more things than I had, or they had a TV back then, which was a big deal. Um, you know, they had other things. And, and so I started thinking about my family, and even though my dad owned several businesses, they were all blue-collar type of businesses. He had a delivery service and he had a sign business. And I remembered growing up and we hardly ever ate out. My parents were very frugal. We hardly ever ate out. And I remember in high school stomping through the house one day going, when I'm a grown-up and I have my own money, I'm going to go to a store and just buy something and not wait for it to be on sale. Um, Because my parents were always, and of course now I buy everything on sale. But, um, (laughs) and I live a lot like them. But I, I went home on break And I'm feeling this weight of guilt. And so I sat down with my dad, and I said, Daddy, I had no idea the sacrifice that it was to put a kid through college. And I feel so bad that you guys have had to make this sacrifice for me to go to school. And so I can work. I can do something if you want me to do it to help. And my dad was this big, gruff, very muscular guy, and People used to think he was a professional football player. He wasn't, but he looked like one. He was just big. And uh, he looked at me, and he got tears in his eyes. And then he started laughing and laughing and laughing. And he said, honey, I could write a check today for all four years of your college without blinking an eye. 
I have what it takes. Don't you worry about it. You go ahead and study and do what you need to do and make me proud. And I think about the Father. You know, he has everything that we need. Jesus paid the price. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to struggle. We go, God, what do you want me to do right now? You've paid the price. You've paid my way. What do you want me to do? And how can I go forward in the call that you have for me? We don't have to earn it. We can rest in him and just live our life in humble obedience. One final thought before we go. Um, the word prodigal literally means extravagantly wasteful. Extravagantly wasteful. I want to suggest this morning that we have a prodigal God. That he takes the risk to be extravagantly wasteful of his grace on us. He loves people um, that absolutely squander his grace. They reject his grace. They have no clue what it is. Um, they take advantage of it, but he keeps loving them that way. He is extravagantly wasteful, if we could say it in that way, of his love towards us. And we're just suggesting, what if we just start acting like him?